Welcome back to SSR Friends. It's episode 178 and the final week of Manuary 2022, and I have such a fun show for you today. At long last, we are coming back to a book that's been high on my personal wish list ever since I started the podcast. Owen Colfer's Artemis Fowl, which was published in 2001 and quickly became a favorite of mine. Does it hold up to my vague but extremely positive memories of it? You're about to find out. Adding to the fun factor today is the fact that my guest, an avid fantasy fan, reader, and editor, is coming to Artemis Fowl for the first time ever. It was really interesting to compare our two experiences with this book. Artemis Fowl is the story of a 12-year-old criminal genius who is hell-bent on getting in on some ancient fairy magic so he can achieve his ultimate goal, the procurement of a whole lot of gold. In his quest, he crosses paths with, and eventually imprisons, Captain Holly Short, a fairy in the Lower Elements Police, aka the LEP, who is really not to be messed with. After Holly is captured by Artemis and his bodyguard Butler, her colleagues underground, led by Commander Root, rush to cut through a lot of annoying bureaucratic red tape in hopes of rescuing her before they send in a biobomb to eliminate Artemis. If that all sounds a little confusing, don't worry about it. I felt exactly the same way. You'll hear me talk about it more in the episode, and you'll be able to enjoy our conversation even if you're not totally clear on the logistics of fairy magic and biological warfare. Over the next hour, my guests and I chat about everything from how we read as kids versus how we read as adults and moral ambiguity to racism and fantasy and Santa Claus. We cover so much ground in this discussion of Artemis Fowl, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Let me introduce you to this week's guest. Zach Lauren Clark is a writer and editor of children's books. He is the author of The Lock Eater, which you'll hear more about later on, and co-author of the Adventures Guild trilogy. A lifelong fantasy nerd, avid Dungeons & Dragons player, and aspiring sorcerer, he lives with his husband and their dog in Brooklyn, New York. Follow Zach on Twitter at ZachLaurenClark and on Instagram at Zachsley. Zach, I am so glad I got to talk you through your first ever experience with Artemis Fowl, and I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thanks also to each and every person listening to this episode. It might seem like this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I couldn't do this without you. If you would like to support the show, even a follow on social media goes a long way. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. Once you're there, you can also share about your favorite episodes with your own online community. Why not take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, like right now, and post that screenshot to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod so I can see. You can also help spread the word about the pod with a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or join us on Patreon. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with fans of the things they create. If you enjoy this podcast, that's you. As a patron, you contribute a few dollars per month to the production of SSR in exchange for exclusive rewards. I have the best time putting these rewards together and getting to know the podcast's patrons better, and I would love for you to join us. We are getting ready to choose our title for the March book club, so it's a great time to get involved. Learn more and join at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Big thanks to all of the current patrons listening now. Speaking of listening, don't forget to turn to our friends at Libro.fm for all of your audiobook needs. I love Libro.fm because it gives you the chance to support independent bookstores instead of giant companies when you listen to the books on your TBR list. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. 
Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Zach. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation about a book that I have to say really surprised me in a way that was surprising, if that makes sense. Like, I'm often surprised by rereads when I come to them for the podcast, but often, like, I feel like I know how I'm going to be surprised because I've been doing this for a while. But this was a surprise on top of a surprise. But I know this is the first time that you read the book. We're talking about Artemis Fowl by Owen Colfer. And Zach, like, let's just start by talking about why you picked it, maybe why you missed it when you were growing up, and we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, you know, I picked it because I am a fantasy writer and a huge fantasy fan. I I love things fae. I love fairies and elves. Uh, You know, before writing The Lock Eater, I wrote this fantasy series with my co-author and best friend called The Adventurers Guild, where there's there's a lot of elves. So I I even felt a little bit guilty picking this one because I felt like a bad, bad fantasy fan. I couldn't believe that in 20 years I hadn't read it. It's got everything I love. It's got kid geniuses who are behaving badly. It's got fairy underworld and underground culture. I couldn't believe that I hadn't read it yet. Well, I'm so glad you finally got an excuse. There was some debate, I remember, when you were choosing your book about whether or not we should choose Artemis Fowl because it was new to you, or if we should go with something that you've read previously. And while often, like, the idea with the podcast is a reread, because then you can kind of compare and contrast to your original experience, I was like, no, like, I think that for a fantasy author, especially, like, this is the time. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. So I'm glad we did it. And given that sort of setup that you just gave us, I actually think that like we're very well matched to have this conversation because I read this book when I was a kid and I remember that I loved it. I don't remember why I loved it because I would have been like 11 or 12 at the time and I struggled with it as an adult. So I feel like your knowledge of fantasy writing and your love for fantasy reading presumably might help guide me through some of my complicated feelings on this reread because I I was a little disappointed. I was really excited to read the book because I do have such fond memories of it from my childhood. And then I just I had a hard time, which I kind of I kind of think leads into like a larger conversation about the way that we read as kids versus the way that we read as adults. And if you're open to it, I kind of want to start there. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so here's my theory. And I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. I generally don't do well with action movies. And I struggle with action sequences in books as well. I lose focus. I find them very confusing. I am much more of like a character-driven reader than a plot-driven reader, if we're going to be that binary about it. And we got a little bit of that in this book. Like there's a lot of action sequences. 
But also, I think I found myself getting lost in a lot of the technology and a lot of the fantasy elements. And I was a huge fantasy reader when I was growing up. And so the theory that I've developed, thanks to Artemis Fowl, is that when I was a kid, I had more patience and I could take the time to like lean into that confusion a little bit more. And it didn't matter to me so much. Whereas I do think as an adult, I was reading this book and I was like, okay, I don't get it. Like what's going on? I guess I'll just keep reading. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, let me tell you my initial reaction coming to it uh, for the first time. Because I, I got through the first chapter, maybe chapter and a half. And my first thought was panic because I wasn't responding to it at all either. And I did not I did not want to come on your podcast and say that I just wanted to like sing the praises of this beautiful book and be super positive. I just listened to your wonderful episode uh, with Jane Icaro, where you gushed about finding my voice and was just like, wow, yes, like that is the buoying conversation I want to have. <laughs> and then unfortunately, I was like, oh, I'm really not the reader for this one. Oh, I should have sent you some other episodes because we're not a gush fest. It's okay. important for me not to be a gush fest. <laughs> and actually, my like not so secret secret is that I really like episodes when it's uh-huh. not that complimentary. Like being respectful of the authors, of course, and like right. aware of the way times have changed and all of that good stuff. But no, I mean, let's be honest and truthful, and it's a safe space for you to share all of your thoughts about Artemis Fowl, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. Great. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right about that patience factor. I, I'm the same way. I'm also, uh, besides being a writer, uh, an editor of kids' books, I focus on a lot of plot heavy genre stuff. And so my patience for these action scenes that just go on and on and on and don't move the story is very thin right now too. And I, I didn't respond to those moments. Okay. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I did try to remember like what I loved about the book so much when I was a kid because it doesn't feel to me like something that I would have responded to. But I think we have to put it into context. And of course, this becomes a much more complicated conversation that we're not going to be able to dig into today. But I was a Harry Potter reader as a kid, Mm -hmm. as most of my peers were at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, something that we're all contending with in a much more complex way all of these years later. But I think Artemis Fowl probably hit me like between a few of the books, like between, you know, books two and three, three and four, I was waiting for the next installment in the way you did if you were a 90s kid. I think that I also was reading Redwall. I was attempting to read Lord of the Rings. Like I was not Mm -hmm. prepared to read Lord of the Rings at that age. But I do think that Artemis Fowl kind of spoke to, to something in me that was like beginning to emerge in my reading life, if that makes sense. Like I liked the complexity of it. I liked the world building but it did surprise me coming back to it, like how techy it was. Like that, yeah. I, I can't imagine that I would have understood that at this age. I, I didn't even mind the tech so much. I think mix, mixing fantasy and technology can be really interesting. I think for me, I'd mentioned I love fairies a lot and was really like excited to dig deep into this whole like fairy society in the contemporary world. And then we spend the entire book following these cops around and the cops are just so macho and so mean and like their scenes just drag on and on. And I, I found myself wondering like, where's the boy genius? Like, right. and, and and where's the like fae magic? Like I'm so bored of these like police officers like being mean to each other. Uh You know what it actually reminded me of now that you mentioned that? I don't know if you're a fan of the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies, another like complicated figure at this point, but there is 
the scene where you have like the elves with attitude um, <laughs> that are then like dispatched to go find Santa. That's what this book is. Uh -huh. Like in the movies, you have these elves that are sent out to like save Santa uh -huh. from himself and the world. And here in Artemis Fowl, you have the LEP. Uh huh. Or the, the organization. Lep leprechaun. Right. The leprechauns, essentially right. elves with right. attitude and that's a very like late 90s early aughts thing isn't it yeah. like ev everything had to be like kind of edgy and then have mm -hmm. a little snark to it yeah and also i think this like glorification of like police policing uh-huh which is a conversation that's like really become pretty big in the past few years yeah i mean i don't know that a ya author would necessarily um speaking of if, if you can hear sirens listeners that uh, <laughs> was a great cue there's very loud sirens outside my house right now um i could not have planned that better myself but um i don't know that a ya author would have built like so much of their book around like a mm -hmm. policing organization i mean yeah. as as an editor like i think you could probably speak to that more than i can i i absolutely you know as i was reading this editor brain turned on and I had this thought like, oh, I need to tell the author, like, like maybe we should like revisit this. I was like, oh wait, this is not my book or my author. But but yeah, I, I had the same thought. And you know, there are moments where even the the police officers who we're supposed to sympathize with, like Holly especially, they're kind of hassling civilians in mm -hmm. this way that like I, I read these scenes and I really wasn't sure what I was supposed to be feeling in that moment. Like, do kids find this funny? There there wasn't really like a strong message about like what are these cops doing and how are we positioned in that? I found that really fascinating. A lot of the reviews that I found that were written around the book's release in 2001 really focus on this concept of the tension between good and evil, which is, of course, like a timeless right. literary fixture. Like, this is nothing new. But these reviews talk about how, like, Owen Culver seems to be playing in the gray area more than a lot of other authors, particularly children's authors that came before him did. Yeah. Which I think is sort of relevant to what you're saying, which is that like, there's not a clear message. And I think part of it is because in YA Lit at this time, like there hadn't been a lot of experimentation with like moral gray Buzziness. and ambiguity. Yeah, exactly. And so maybe it, it feels like a little bit of an experiment. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And okay, so there was this scene where Holly is headed into work. It's very early in the book. And this is going to talk not just about this topic, but also like the topic of fantasy racism, which I, you know, I, I think is coming up a, a lot. And and we are doing a lot of soul searching with uh, as fantasy fans and readers and creators. But she like is on her way to work. And there's these goblin mothers who are like pleading on the behalf of their uh, kids who are in jail. And she is just so dismissive of them. And it felt to me in that moment, like the book was also a little bit dismissive of them. Like, like, of course, goblins end up in jail. I, I kind of had to stop in that moment and be like, okay, what is this scene doing? Like, am I missing something? Is it like actually making the opposite point that I think it's making? And I came away just really unsure. And, you know, I think like when, when you have your fantasy creatures get more and more human, you know, you set them in a society with technology that has prisons and police systems. And then you say something like, yeah, like goblins are going to jail. Like these are all bad eggs. Like, like wow, like that that's such, like how do you not connect that to our world and 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 if you're not making like a, a really strong, clear point there, then what are kids taking away from it? Yeah, I'm glad we're having this conversation because as somebody who's not 
really big into the fantasy genre as an adult, it's unfortunately a conversation that like I haven't been as aware of. But a few months ago, we did an episode about Redwall. um, And it was something that I stumbled Mm. upon quite a bit in my research about that series, because that universe is, of course, broken down into these different species. Yeah. And in that book, it's like some species are always good and some species are always bad. And so there's a lot written about Redwall specifically regarding just kind of like the inherent moral judgment that exists in these worlds and that then unfortunately often translates into like the way we treat certain types of humans and the way we see each other. So I'm, I'm really happy to be expanding on that conversation here just because it's something that I'm not as aware of. And honestly, like, isn't something that I even was as aware of in this book, because again, I was confused, but that's a really, a really good point. And I think I wanted to like Holly, like, I think that's the other thing. Like she is this badass, like female fairy police officer right first first one yeah first one like you can tell that she has some tension with her commanding officers like she doesn't do the thing she's supposed to do she's she's late on this ritual that she has to do in order to like retain (laughs) her magic it's been four years since she did this because she's like screw you guys like i don't need it and I like the fact that she at one point like speaks up to to Root, who is her boss, where I think she says something about like, oh, well, if like one of your beloved sprites, like one of my male counterparts mm. did this, you wouldn't be giving him a hard time. And so I really yeah. wanted to like her. But I think it was hard for me to like to know how I felt. And it's it's those moments like you mentioned with the goblins and also just like the way she's operating between these two worlds, between the leprechaun organization and then the human world in which we meet Artemis. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think you're right. Holly is, is meant to be a character who we really respond to. And I think as a kid, I, I would have loved her. I would have absolutely followed her uh, wherever she went. And she, at the end, you know, you talk about the morally gray areas. There's, there's a moment at the end where the fairy police are just ready to like nuke Artemis's house and like kill everyone inside. And she's kind of the only voice that's like, whoa, 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 this is too far. So I think the book really does set her up as like the like clear moral voice among, among the leprechaun folk. <laughs> the leprechaun <laughs> force. Um, there are other books, and I never read any of the others, but I sort of was stunned by like the breadth of this universe. It's huge. It's huge. So this first book came out in 2001. Owen Colfer was writing until 2012, and then he like wasn't done yet. So he created this companion series in, I believe, 2019. I mean, I have so many notes on this that I'm I'm honestly like <laughs> losing my place, like trying to find it. But then he wrote this other sort of smaller series about Artemis's twin brothers, Miles and Beckett, mm-hmm. which is called The Foul Twins. Yes, that came out in 2019. Glad I remembered that correctly. Apparently, the series has sold in excess of 25 million copies, has been translated into 40 languages. I would assume that Holly is part of this series as it develops over time because I do think that she's a really dynamic interesting character and I agree that they're setting they're setting readers up for that I did find myself even though I was struggling with the book being like oh like I see that there's going to be a sequel and I'm kind of excited about it right (laughs) yeah and I I did a little research on Google myself and I think the sequel like involves a goblin uprising it's of some kind that holly and artemis have to like team up for so i'm really curious how how colfer handles that and like whether the goblins are bad guys or whether there's a little more nuance there especially if he's interested in, in playing with gray areas 
oh, that's so interesting. The goblins have had enough. They I are, know. They are that's what I hope up. it is. Like, yeah. Goblin rights. I'm, I'm, I'm ready there. <laughs> that's how it should be. So before we move off the topic of Holly, although I'm sure we'll come back to her, I did want to chat briefly because you mentioned that you do have an interest in like fairy stories and in fae fantasy. And I'm curious like what your thoughts are on how this fairy subculture that Owen Colfer has created in Artemis Fowl fits into that larger kind of body of work in this space, in this subgenre. Yeah, I think he did a really interesting thing. You know, his fairy lore seems more connected to classic Irish mythology in which the fairies lived literally underground in these fairy mounds. And so he, in this book, has just had them continue to have to dig deeper and deeper and deeper to get away from humans. And so that now they're living like basically near the Earth's core, which I, I thought was interesting. It's not typically like the the fairy fantasy that I go for. I sort of love the elves living in the forest, Tolkien, you know, they've, they've got this like illusory magic, but I, I really enjoyed it when the magic was present. So there's the scene where Holly mesmers Juliet. I thought that was so fun. And uh, not, you know, to, to say something that I really liked about the books, I think Colfer is really good at switching viewpoints on a dime, which is something that I really struggle with. Even when I'm writing third person, I tend to be really like a close third. But this scene is kind of just a perfect example of like, Holly is mesmerizing her and telling her to do things. And then suddenly we're in Julia's head and she's like, wow, that's a great idea. And it's like this back and forth that is just, I, I think as a kid, I, I would have been like rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah, it does. It seems to come pretty naturally to him as an author and it works well in the story. I will say that a lot of reviewers were kind of at odds about that, about the mixed points of view. And I actually just finished writing a, a paper for um, my MFA about rotating close third perspectives in yeah. contemporary adult fiction, which sounds way smarter than I felt <laughs> while I was writing it. <laughs> But then I, I read Artemis Fowl almost immediately after turning it, like closing my eyes and just hitting submit and being like, I just need this to be out of my head. And, uh -huh. um, and there, was like, it was. Oh, there it was. There it was. I can't get rid of it. <laughs> and I do think it worked for the most part. That's how I, I write as well. I write in very close third, but I also, at least in the thesis that I'm working on, I'm, I'm changing up the character that I'm using as my perspective. And I do think it works for the most part in this book, although I, I would imagine it becomes confusing for kid readers like who aren't used to that. Mm. But I guess it shows that Owen Colfer gives his young readers a lot of credit, which I always respect. And for what it's worth, he was actually a teacher before he started writing. And so yeah. um, I always find it interesting when I learn that an author who writes for kids used to be a teacher, like to think about how their familiarity with young readers from working with them day in and day out, like informs the way that they approach them on the page. Yeah, you know, I, I try to do that too. As an author, I think kids are, they're smart. And the kids who, um, who get it will really appreciate these things. And the ones who don't, they're pretty good at just like skimming over the things they don't understand and mm -hmm. latching onto the things that they really appreciate. I thought it was well done. I can I can see the critique, but I thought he did a good job of it. Yeah, I mean, me reading Redwall when I was nine was basically a, a giant exercise in me <laughs> understanding like 10% of it. Those books are so dense, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it took me like so long to read as an adult for this show. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think most kids 
kids are better than adults at accepting that they don't need to understand everything and just like yeah. enjoying the ride, which I think speaks to maybe some of my frustrations with reading this as an adult. So we've talked about Holly. I'm sure we'll we'll get back to her, but I do want to turn our focus to Artemis, our title character, because he is our other primary point of view in this book. And as you kind of referred to earlier, Zach, he is a boy genius, but right. he's not he's not like other boy genius. <laughs> <laughs> he's a cool boy genius. Uh, no, he is an evil mastermind, sort yeah. of anti-hero boy genius, yeah. which I think is worth a conversation unto itself because I was trying to think of other books that I would have read around this time that were written for kids my age that put the anti-hero at the center and it was interesting to think about like how I would have absorbed that as a kid. And if I even would have been aware of it when I was growing up, like, did I understand that this person wouldn't have been like the quote good guy in another Mm -hmm. book? And did I care? I just, I was thinking about it a lot and how it would have played to me at that time. You know, I think I would have eaten that up. I loved stories like that. I loved like, oh, like there's a little bit of an edge to this this character. You know, I also just love stories about like those kid detectives who outsmarted everyone around them. I really wanted to see, and I think if I were like the editor of this book, I would have encouraged a little more deep digging there. Like I wanted to see Artemis outsmarting people at every moment. I wanted to like see his plans, like like come to perfect domino fruition. And there's there's a little bit of that, but there were also moments that I, I was sort of scratching my head like, oh, I guess that worked out. Yeah, I mean, we see like a little bit of his plotting, but right. very rarely like the whole thing. And I liked that we got moments of plotting. I liked that we got some moments of like real human emotion and empathy, usually having to do with his mother. Uh-huh. But I did want to note, and I don't know how much of, of this kind of coverage you came across while you were Googling, as you said that you were doing, but there was a Disney Plus adaptation that came out last year of Artemis Fowl. And um, of course, there's like all kinds of posts online right now about like, first of all, it was panned, like apparently it was a terrible movie. But I found a lot of articles about like the 12 biggest differences between the book and the movie. And it seems like one of the most notable and sort of controversial changes that they made was that Artemis is actually not evil in the movie. He's like, (gasps) yeah, he's like classically, quote, good. Why? (laughs) So apparently the director was worried that this sort of like young James Bond kind of mastermind like wouldn't necessarily play to a young crowd in 2021, 2022. Um, And so he kind of tried to adjust it. But Artemis Fowl's father, who's interestingly enough played by Colin Farrell. Yeah, right. I did see that. Is also not a criminal mastermind. And in the book, Artemis Fowl is is sort of a bad guy because he comes from a long line of criminals. I'm so confused by this. And I'm sorry I didn't watch it. Be- I-, I was thinking today, like, oh my gosh, I really wish I had watched this because I-, I-, I was curious how the movie handled a lot of things. And I-, I saw the casting choices were really interesting. I love the casting of Judy Dench as the commander. I-, I thought that was a really inspired choice. Yeah, I agree. But now I'm so curious what even the conflict is. Like, What's like who like are is Artemis going to bat against the fairies in the movie at all? I don't know because it does seem hard to imagine. <laughs> right. I do think I remember reading that um the movie kind of borrows from both the first and the second book in the series. So I wonder okay. like again, maybe, I haven't read the second yeah. book, maybe more goblins. It's maybe uprising. it's a team up, right? 
maybe Artemis is leading the goblin uprising against <laughs> the leprechauns. That might be wishful thinking. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I do think like it's sort of, I guess my surprise at Artemis being an anti-hero in the book is like kind of uh, reinforced by the fact that this choice was made more recently with the adaptation. Yeah. I, you know, I think antiheroes are really fun. I, I don't have a problem with them. I, I, I think if a writer does them really well, they can be uh, incredibly fun. You know, I love antiheroes that, that maybe even have the best intentions at heart, but still end up making like the selfish choice at like the pivotal moment. And, and that's not really what Artemis is. He's, he's an antihero who considers himself a really bad villain, but then when push comes to shove and he's got to make like the, the evil choice, he, he kind of backs off a little bit, which I also think is fun. And I, I, I thought it was handled well. Well, and it reminds you of his age because he is 12. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> which I kept having to remind myself of. I was like, oh, he is, he's he not is a even child. a teenager. He is, right. a, he's a child. If I were to put him into a bucket of youth, he would not even be a teen. Or he's, <laughs> he's not, he's barely a tween. Right. But he is really smart too, which I think is, is interesting to read. Like when we meet him, he has done all this research about fairies and he is jet setting around the world as he does to get this book, book. that contains all the secrets to fairy rituals in the world. And I do think it's worth noting because I, I loved this part of it when I was a kid, the gnomish language and the code that you find throughout the book. And there's a, a sort of key in the back of the book so you can right. translate everything. And I, you know, being an adult and as I said, having less patience now than I used to, I didn't take the time to, to do the translating. But I remember when I read this for the first time, like actually bookmarking this page that had the key and there's gnomish language written at the bottom of every single page, um, at least in this edition. And I think that if I had this copy when I was 12, I would have spent quite a bit of time translating right. a lot of this stuff. So I did think that that language element was cool. I read it in ebook. So I saw the key in the back, but I didn't see the sort of messages on the bottom. And I, I think you're right. I would have absolutely loved that. Oh, wow. And I'm sure like it, it says something funny and it all adds up to some really great thing yeah. that neither of us know. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had had the patience and the time. So yeah, this book is written in Gnomish, but Artemis has, he feels that he'll be able to translate it. He's of course like devised a way. And so he goes to Vietnam and finds a fairy who, and I like wasn't sure how to feel about this part of it. Mm. But, like, of course, it's like a fairy who he has already identified as like, probably being drunk and like vulnerable to him. Mm -hmm. And so he like finds her essentially living in like a sewer. And it grossed me out that that was like how we met him. Like he's already taking advantage of of somebody who is in need. And like, of course, this is a fantasy world, but it's just, it, it felt icky to me. Yeah, I agree. And um, in my research of the movie, I noticed they did cut that entire scene out, which I think was a, a wise choice. The human side of things is also not super diverse in the mm -hmm. book, at least. Um, mm -hmm. So I found it kind of icky that like the the few character that like one character of color, maybe that we see who's a human being is this contact that he's using to find the fairy who he is like threatening and extorting the entire mm -hmm. time. So I, I, I am totally with you. I found that first chapter really off-putting. Yeah, I was glad to see, um, speaking to the diversity of this universe, that it looks like in the adaptation, they did cast a Black actor in the role of Butler, who is a fairly significant part yeah, and, of and the Juliet. story. And Juliet, yes. So I am glad that they 
you know, made a few small changes. But I agree, like a lot of these little moments where there there might have been an opportunity to add some nuance, those opportunities were missed in the book. So Artemis like gets this book from the fairy, uh, extorts her, as you mentioned, like his extortion of her is like sort of the point around which this entire plot turns because now he has the book and he can learn all the secrets of the fairy universe. His ultimate goal is to get some gold. Some gold. Um, Get him some gold. (laughs) So in a lot of the other reviews that I was reading from around the original release, like there's a lot of talk about greed as a main theme Mm. of the book, which I think is like fairly obvious. How do you feel about the way that was handled in the book? Did you feel like there was some complexity to it or was it, it was a pretty uh, kind of traditional in its approach? Yeah. I, you know, I think there was complexity to it. I, I first of all found myself wondering, like, if you have a ton of gold, how easy is it to actually turn that into <laughs> money? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's got contacts if he's like a, an underworld genius. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I did find myself wondering, and I guess the fairies in this book are pretty powerful. They're powerful beings. They've got technology well beyond uh, what we mere humans do, especially with 2001 tech. But I, I did kind of like find myself hoping that he'd be going after like punching up a little more rather yeah. than like at this other culture. Yeah. Like I'm going to use your rules against you to steal from you. Yeah. Punching down is a good way to think about it because right. he like gets all these secrets and he's like, okay, cool. Now that I know that fairies have to go plant an acorn in order uh-huh. to like refuel their magic. And it has to be an acorn from an oak tree in a very specific kind of location. And he and Butler, who's kind of his like sidekick bodyguard pseudo friend, I guess, right. narrowed down like all of the oak trees in the world to I think like 125 <laughs> oak trees that might be feasible locations for this ritual to take place. And so they start to stake out oak trees waiting for a fairy to unknowingly practice the ritual to regain their magic and then be kidnapped by Artemis and Butler, who is like a very large human. So much so that I actually wasn't sure for a minute, like if he was meant to be human, like the way they describe him almost felt to me like a fantasy character who just like oh, maybe right. like an ogre of some sort. I was wrong. He's a human. So they, they stake out Holly when she is performing her ritual. And that's how the action of the book really kicks up. They shoot her with a tranquilizer dart and, um, they like bring her back to to Fowl Manor, which sounds like a horrible place. <laughs> you know, I, the tranquilizer dart reminds me. I was really shocked at how many guns there were in this book, mm-hmm. um, and that's another thing that I think maybe I hope gets downplayed in the movie. I feel like would get downplayed if it were written today. But they're like every chapter has like at least half a dozen gun references. And some of them, as you mentioned, shoot darts. Some of the fairy guns appear to shoot like lasers or blasts of some kind, but a lot of them shoot bullets. And and Butler like shoots a lot of bullets over the course of the story. Yeah, and you mentioned this already, but like so much of the sort of like climax of the book is built up from this conversation that the leprechaun force is having about this like bio bomb that they have, (laughs) which is... So dark, like they yeah. they basically have decided within, I would say, the first 50 to 75 pages of the book that they are going to to dispense this biobomb. They just are kind of trying to figure out, like, uh-huh. how can we get the relevant parties out of uh-huh. danger? But like, there's never any doubt that they're going to do that. They're just like right. ruthless about this bomb. So they're like, cool, we're going to do that no matter what. If we can get Holly <laughs> out, awesome. If we can't, like sucks for her which is brutal. It is. And even Holly is like, 
you know, as she's arguing against the biobomb, she's like, oh, I don't care if Artemis dies. This this child needs to be put out of this world. <laughs> but she's like, but Juliet is an innocent. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's pretty violent and just like, I think I already used the word ruthless, but it's pretty ruthless. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of guns, definitely more than we're used to seeing today, I think more than would be recommended for most yeah. authors to include in their books today. So now we have Artemis and Holly in the same space. Artemis mm -hmm. brings her back to Fowl Manor. Butler is kind of helping him figure out how to like keep her calm and happy so that they can then like negotiate with her. But behind the scenes, we have what I can only describe as the bureaucracy of mm. the fairy world which i did have to laugh about because like i love when in books whether for kids or adults like authors kind of wink to readers about like this whole world is built on red tape like <laughs> fantasy world reality like it's all the same red tape it's all the same like middle age like middle management like arguing with each other and trying to outdo each other and it's no different in artemis fowl yeah, it's like get ready, kids. Like you think yeah. you think it's boring now. Yeah, I mean, you think that it's going to be all cool tricks and magic and technology once you're underground with the fairies? No, uh -huh, like they're just no, trying sorry. to like yeah, they want promotions and they want new titles. Scheming politicians, right? There's uh, your subordinates who like who don't respect you, like. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand the politics of it. Like there is, there's like a promotion of, I, I honestly lost track of some of their names, but there's one character who's like promoted to a lieutenant role and like then gets demoted. That whole thing lost me, I think. And this is like such a little nitpicky thing, but I'm curious what you think as an editor. I'm big on names. And I found a lot of the names to be very confusing. So Holly's last name is short. And yes. then her commander is Commander Root. And even yeah. those two names, I had a hard time. Like, I often was like, okay, am I, am I in Holly's head or am I in the commander's head? Again, because we're shifting perspectives. And then I think a lot of the names of the people back at headquarters, well, the fairies back at headquarters, they also had a lot of, like, one-syllable names yeah. or names that were kind of interchangeable. I struggled to keep them straight. I totally agree. I, I got them confused all the time. And you know, if you're dealing with fairies, you've got such like a wonderful opportunity to come up with some really like, long, interesting, delicious names that give you like a look into their culture. And it really, and it really was just like, oh, this one's root, this one's short, this one's grub or whatever. Yeah, I like to think that because Owen Colfer is an Irish author. And as you said, like, it seems like some of there's maybe some mythology here of like Irish fairy stories like maybe when he first wrote it like these fairies all had lovely Gaelic names uh -huh. and then they were like no these have to be easier for kids you know fair enough uh, and they're also um they are the police so like maybe they're a little gruffer and I remember uh Commander Root's first name is Julius and he mm -hmm. really like doesn't like it when people call him that name. So like clearly there's this like machismo like no we're using our 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 short gruff uh military names. Yeah, it was uh it was interesting and like I just was like okay, just I almost should have written them down and just tried to remember them. Um I did like Foley. Foley is like the the tech expert. Um he's a satyr. 
And he is like kind of always making fun of Root because he like doesn't understand how to use these like super cool <laughs> gadgets that Foley is creating and they have a fun banter. So I liked him and they do seem to have some interesting ideas. Although th- there was like a weird thing about like using a troll who has been in prison for years that I think speaks to something that didn't make me feel so good about like the prison industrial complex and like the fact that this guy is just like plucked out of jail and they're giving him a hard time because he's a career criminal. But they're like, oh, but also please do our bidding. Um, I didn't love that. The troll was so fascinating, um, you know, to get back to that like fantasy racism thing, because you're yeah. right, like he was in prison, but also the book like especially at the end took special care to let us know that like this is basically an animal like that like this is not like a thinking person it's like if you dropped uh dropped a gorilla into a house and even like there are moments where we experience the troll's viewpoint at the at the end where it's just like kind of processing based on instinct so again you're right i found it very icky i didn't know i didn't know what to think about this troll or like what the troll's position in this fairy society would be, um, especially society so full of tech and and human trappings. I I found it really strange. Yeah, and his name was Mulch. But I guess there was another troll, because there's the troll that Holly... And I got a little confused about this, because there's the troll that Holly is, like, out tracking. Oh, you're talking about the... um, the, uh, Not troll, he's a, um, a dwarf. Oh, he's a dwarf. Okay, see, I clearly was missing it. (laughs) Okay, I was not talking about the dwarf. I thought there were two trolls, which, again, confused by all of these creatures. But the troll, yeah, I I did not love the way he was handled. And then I don't even want to go that far into detail about this. But I just have to mention it because I think it's relevant to, like, kid-led in general. And it's probably a personal taste thing. (laughs) I, think I, I know I, what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. I am not, I don't think I've, in the almost four years that I've been doing this podcast, I don't think I've ever had to bring this up, which, you know, there's a first time for everything. I am not a bathroom humor girl. I don't mm-hmm. think I ever was. I, I was just like not a potty humor kid. And this troll um, is sort of the mascot for like a lot of bathroom humor in this book. And I get it. I get that like, I'm not even going to say the, that F word because it grosses me out. I get that kids, <laughs> like, I'll say the, the other one all day, but I'm not going to say that one. Uh-huh. I get that kids, I guess, love jokes about that. But the amount of page space that was dedicated in this, like, pretty advanced uh-huh. YA book to that, um, it was, it I, I, it was cringy for me. And it also like, I wasn't sure if kids would even, it almost seemed like the author was trying to tell it in like a wink wink kind of way with like elevated language. The point that I was like, well, kids even know that what's going on is that what's this troll has gas. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm so sorry to disagree with you because I, I loved that. And I think go, as a go kid- Go for it, make the I, argument. <laughs> I would have absolutely like lost my mind. Uh, I So this, um, this dwarf, and you find out that all dwarves are really especially good at digging, but the way they dig is by unhinging their jaw, like a snake, I guess, and then eating the dirt and then passing the dirt through them and expectorating it out the other side. And that's a nice way to describe it. Uh-huh. Thank, you. And, <laughs> thank you. And and this character Mulch weaponizes it several times. 
And uh, he like has these moments where he's like, oh God, I forgot, I for like, I forgot to do it in the tunnel. Like now <laughs> I've got to like hold on to this while okay. I'm doing this heist. I, I found it so funny. Um, and I, I, I think as a kid, I, I would have really, really responded to that. Yeah, I think that's just like a personal preference yeah. thing. I'm probably in the minority and I definitely think I was in the minority when I was a kid, but reading it as an adult, I was like, ugh. No, <laughs> and then I thought it was over, and it came back. Oh, it just keeps it. It never ends. Like every scene he's in, please stop. So there's a lot. I mean, there's a as you would expect in a fantasy novel. There's a lot of things that go on. There's a lot of action. Uh, there's a lot going on in Foul Manor as Artemis is like trying to secure this gold. As the fairies are trying to make sure that Holly is safe. As Holly is then like managing to find a clever workaround so that she can get her magic. Like she she manages to perform the ritual from inside the walls of the manor. And so she ends up like actually having more power than she thought she would at the beginning of all of this. And she kind of befriends Juliet, who is Butler's sister. Like there's a lot going on. And as I as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and I'm not entirely proud to admit this, but like I didn't get a lot of it. Like a lot of it was lost on me. But I think it's important to note that, you know, at the end, like we land kind of where we thought we would land the whole time. The fairies are going to release this bomb. A bomb, yeah. We have this friendship developing with Holly. It's like almost a reluctant friendship, even with Artemis. Like she wants to protect Butler and Juliet. And I have to say, like, I wanted to see more of their relationship develop because when we got to the end of it and all of a sudden she had this soft spot for them, I was like, I'm sorry, I missed the part where you made any connection. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted more. Like, even with, like, I guess I sort of understood, you know, it is this very masculine feeling world. And it seemed to me like Holly saw Juliet as somebody who maybe she, related to a little bit or like wanted to help because right. she was different than so many of the other people that were surrounding her. But even one scene of them connecting over something or making a joke about like, all oh, these dudes, you know, I don't know what it would have been, but I, it was hard for me to buy it. And I liked that turn because it sets us up for the sequel. It's unexpected. I like that. It gave us a chance to see Artemis's softer side ultimately. But I was like, what happened to get us here? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's also a moment where Artemis is um, lying to Holly about, you know, he he claims that he drugged her and that's how he learned everything about fairy culture. And he has a moment of um, guilt there, which, I, you know, is a, a very clear sign that, oh, maybe his moral compass is growing. Maybe maybe he's like not as bad as we think he is. But I felt like that was unearned too. I, I wanted there to be more conversations between them where even as they are antagonizing each other, maybe there's there's something fun there. Maybe maybe they sense in each other like a little bit of a kindred spirit or or, or forge some kind of connection. I, I totally agree. There there were a lot of missed opportunities. So at the end when when Holly like feels like oh I've got to protect these people, I, I was kind of scratching my head why. Yeah, it also would have broken up the sort of never ending like action sequences for, for her to have some of those conversations and even for us to get a little bit more interior with her about like maybe noticing things about these people that she liked or that she was intrigued by. So I, I did like that it got there, but I wish I understood more how that happened. But ultimately, like everybody wins a little bit, I guess, because yeah. Artemis and I actually really like this piece of like kind of mythology where um, Artemis manages to survive the biobomb by, 
and this is kind of messed up, but like he drugged himself and Butler and Juliet knowing that he would survive the bomb that way because of like fairy lore. And I liked the mention of Santa Claus because it was oh, yeah. just Christmas as we're recording this. And he kind of talks about how like Santa Claus employs this logic because like, I'm trying to figure out a good way to explain it, but basically humans will kind of come out of a magical incident in whatever state they entered it in. So like the theory is that like kids sleep through Santa's trip around the world and he has the time to execute that trip around the world because they are asleep when it starts. And so he can take as much time as he needs and then they will they will be intact and asleep in the morning when he's done. So that's kind of the logic I think he's applying here. And I, I kind of like that. Like, I like that we got that bit of fairy culture, but I feel like you're skeptical. I, can I tell you, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like, you're right. Like, so, but I guess the idea is that you can't change states between awake and sleep when you're in this time stop bubble. And if you do, it somehow ejects you out of it. But he, he didn't really have any good evidence for this. And he, (laughs) he was basing like their lives on it. Um, And like all these characters had to, had to trust him. And, you know, I felt like this was the moment where I was supposed to really understand like how brilliant Artemis was like, oh my gosh, like he had this plan and it was so smart. And I was just like, what? Like, hold on. You you were sure because Santa Claus, <laughs> <laughs> because Santa Claus visits sleeping children and they sleep through it, that if you fall asleep while you're in there, that you'll escape the bomb. I, I, I didn't like it. I really didn't quite quite get the logic there. It's so funny because that was the only thing that I was <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I got it, Santa. So yeah, I mean, the humans wake up. Artemis asks Holly for a wish, which again, I need to know like why she granted that to him because he did like shoot her with a tranquilizer gun and then imprison her in his home and then hold her for ransom. And then like, like, why would you give that person a wish? So she trades that wish for half of the gold that he was able to negotiate with the leprechauns. And his wish is for his mother, Angeline Fowle, to become healthy again. It seems she's been suffering with mental health challenges for a really long time, which I also, I think, probably could have been handled more delicately in a 2021 world. I was going to ask your opinion on that. Like, she seemed to have mental health issues simply because her husband went missing. And I didn't quite get that. And then the wish somehow healed that. I, I didn't quite understand Yeah. And then also, of course, like the notion of like dealing with her mental health or her mental illness by like just leaving her in her room alone. And like Artemis is like taking advantage of her illness because he's like sick. I don't have to go to school because my mom doesn't know what's going on. Like (laughs) what does not does not work in 2022. But his wish is to make her well again. And so I guess we have to give him that he does love his mom and he's very happy when she seems to be back to herself and we're set up for the sequel i guess i mean i don't think that i'll read the sequel i don't think i'm gonna put it on my wish list for future podcast episodes sorry listeners if you want to hear that zach would you read the next books no i i think i'm done you know i might tune into the disney movie Mm -hmm. if you know i I, i'm doing something have it on in the background i am kind of curious there but I, i think i'm done with the books 
it was also in development for so long. It looked like they first announced it in 2001, like they must have sold the rights to the adaptation right as the rights to the book were sold. And then there were a lot of missed connections. I saw some kind of murmurings around that maybe Harvey Weinstein was involved. And so that then, of course, was Uh. redirected. So yeah, it seems like a lot of things happened, but it took almost, I guess, yeah, like 18, 19 years to get the movie out there. So it is kind of cool that it finally happened. In a lot of ways, I'm actually glad that it took so long because I'm not sure that like the Judy Dench decision would have been made right. or some of the other casting decisions would have been made earlier on. But um, yeah, I think I'm good on Artemis Fowl. And I'm sort of, I feel a little bit badly that like it was maybe a letdown for you after all of these years. <laughs> it's You know what? It has resulted in this really fun conversation about it, um, which has been like 10 times more fun than actually reading. So I think it's I think it's worth it. Great. But I take it that it did not really meet your expectations. No, no, I um you know, I wanted I wanted an antihero kid genius who I wanted to root for. And we spend so little time with Artemis and he's just kind of so dastardly throughout that whenever Holly or even the the dwarf got like a one up on him, I was so happy for them. And also it just felt like a fun change of pace. Yeah, it was nice to like kind of get a break in the action at Fowl Manor. Yeah. Other than Artemis Fowl, Zach, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, so this is a little bit selfish. My Elliot Schrafer is uh, my friend, and he even blurred my book. But I, I finished his YA, The Darkness Outside Us, uh, recently, and it was just so, so spectacular. You know, as a, an editor and writer, I've been turning to audiobooks a lot more for my um, just fun consumption. And I remember I was like, listening to this as it was ending and washing the dishes and just like weeping into my sink. It's It's very, very good. Oh, wow. So I'll include links to both the like bookshop.org hardcover landing page for that book and also the Libro FM audio so that if people want to listen to it, I know we have a lot of audiobook listeners in our community. And if it's if it brings you to tears, it must be really good. It's very good. Yeah, the, the narrator did some really great things. And you just mentioned your new book, Zach, which as this episode is dropping, has been out in the world for about a week. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's my solo debut, uh, The Lock Eater. Um, it follows this uh, foundling girl, Melanie Gate. Her orphanage is visited by this sort of magical automaton, which in this world uh, tend to uh, serve wizards and witches. Uh, And the automaton claims that it needs an apprentice for uh, its witch uh, mistress. And Melanie is chosen um, because she already has this kind of magical knack for opening things. She can like open locks and doors with her touch. But it's very quickly revealed that the automaton is uh, not, in fact, this kind of mindless servant. It is uh, a sentient being who has made up this lie because it needs to get out of the city and it needs Melanie's help to do it. And so they go on this journey where Melanie is posing as uh, a magical genius, a, a, a kid prodigy. Cool. And the automaton is her assistant. But in fact, the automaton uh, knows so much so much about magic, which is in itself mysterious. And it is teaching her as they go. Oh, that sounds so cool. And also sounds like it has some of like the better elements of Artemis Fowl. <laughs> and I'm sure you've done, they're up to date. And uh, I'm so excited for you. That sounds really fantastic. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Well, congratulations, listeners. I will also include a link to The Lock Eater in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to Zach's other work. Zach, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and to talk about it with me. I said at the beginning that I did not enjoy the read as much, but as you said, like definitely led to a fun conversation and I'm glad we had it. Totally agree. What a, what a privilege and a blast. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Zach. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>